if you could meet anyone in the entire world, who would you choose to meet? And if I told you that this coming Saturday, you got to meet them, what preparations would you make this week? Let's pretend that it's not Thanksgiving week. How would you prepare? What would you do? How would you act? You know, how much sleep would you get? What what kind of mood would you be in as you anticipated that meeting? And after you've asked your or answered those questions, what you would do, then ask yourself why. Why would you make those preparations? Why, assuming that you would be in a good mood, why would you be so happy to meet that person? Now, I feel quite confident that you are going to forgive me for asking those very trite questions as if, you don't see where I'm going with this. Or as if I can't say, ha ha, I caught you, I tricked you, didn't I? You prepared for somebody else. Now how are you going to prepare for the Lord? It's almost as bad as the questions that compare worship service to the football game. You know, as the illustration goes, you, you get excited when you're watching that drama played out on uh, the gridiron. You cheer when your team is winning. You sigh. Your team is losing. You get irate at the, just, at the injustice of the bad ref that's making bad calls and causing your team to lose. You're committed. Nothing, nothing is going to prevent you from watching that game. So then come the questions. Why do you not have the same commitment to worship? Why do you struggle to get excited or even stay awake for the divine Drama of worship. Don't answer that. I might be offended. (laughs) Why are you ambivalent to the battle, to the spiritual warfare, cheering the victories of the kingdom of God and lamenting the battles lost? Now, the only reason I use these ridiculously trite illustrations is to remind us that there really is something in us, isn't there? We really do get excited at the thought of meeting someone we consider important. We really do get excited when we are watching uh, the game. And so how is that going to transfer? Because here's the truth. The, The truth is this. You are the temple of the living God. I am the temple of the living God, the dwelling place of God. When we dwell on that reality, it should be exciting. (laughs) Don't you think that we are the dwelling place of God? And so we've got to dwell on it. We've got to tap into the excitement and we've got to be prepared to fight against the enemy who seeks to etherize us spiritually, you know, to put us in a, a spiritual coma because you and I, we've got to be the strongest temples that we can be. That's the call of God on our life. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning as we return once again to Zechariah chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll take them now and turn the Old Testament to Zechariah chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you or on your phone, uh, the, the passage is printed in the bulletin. So when you found your place, let's stand together as we hear read the word of the living God. Zechariah chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, 
not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we return once again to these verses that have become familiar to us. We pray, Lord, that you would bring uh, fresh insights and excitement as we consider them once again this morning. Father, we do seek to be strong temples to be used by you, the building of your kingdom. So toward that end, we pray that you would bless this reading of your word, the hearing of it, as you promised to do. Spirit of God, join your word. Bring life, light, understanding, transformation, power, change. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. So this morning we rejoin Zerubbabel on this project site, and and he's looking out over a mountain of debris that used to be the temple of God. And he's got to get that debris moved away, and a new temple has to be built in the place of the old one. Now, I don't believe it's possible for me to overemphasize the importance of the temple. And that's why we are returning to these verses once again and over and over again. Because the message of the temple is the most important message for the world. One commentator describes the temple like this. The children of Israel were the actors in a great play. The temple was their grand theater. The priests and the high priest wore elaborate costumes. The Levites were stagehands and supervisors. They had wonderful props, brazen altar, laver, lampstand, golden altar, table of showbread. God was the director. And the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, was the script. What was the point of this great drama played out in the temple? Well, it was to tell over and over and over again the story, the story of the fall of man and woman and all of creation. The fall from the height, the height of perfection and life for which and in which they were created into the abyss of decay and death. To tell again the story of God's redemption, his plan to to elevate, to rescue, to restore, to heal, to save. A more important story can never be told than this one. And it was acted out over and over and over again in the temple. And that's why the temple had to be built. Because the temple dramatically declared this good news. God is good. God is gracious. God is present. God redeems. God restores. Life wins. Death loses. And a cheer went up from God's people, right? Yay! This is the best message. It's the message of the temple, and that's the reason the temple must be built. 
Verses 6 and 7, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might will you build, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace to it, grace to it. And so it was. The temple was, in fact, built. And then Jesus came, and he stood in the temple. And he taught in the temple. And he cleansed that temple when the message, the story that was going out from it, had been completely distorted and perverted. Jesus drove them out. Those who were defiling the story and perverting the purpose of the temple. And with consuming zeal, Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And once Jesus had cleared the temple, the blind and the lame, those who had not been permitted access to the temple, they came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. And this is the point where God's people cheer. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the divine drama acted out. The broken are healed. God never abandons this story. The temple story, it never, ever goes away. It just changes venues. Jesus says, John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So now Jesus is the temple. The story, it's no longer told through a building, through symbols, candles, incense, altars, showbread, sacrifices, colorful costumes, the presence of God. It's not shrouded any longer in a cloud that we call the Shekinah glory. Now, the presence of God is in the person of Jesus Christ, the new temple. The divine drama is acted out in him, in his in his birth, in his life, in his death on the cross, in his burial, in his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, a position of power and authority, and a cheer went up from God's people. Because it's power and it's authority that's needed to continue to build the temple. Because God has not abandoned The idea or the message of the temple, he's still building it. Now listen to these verses. Follow along with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. As you come to him, Christ, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves... Like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here's where God's people cheer. The right team is winning. God is building his temple his spiritual house, his church, and his divine drama is being worked out in his people. Because of Jesus, the cornerstone 
And through faith in him, people can no longer be shamed by sin. Crushed by guilt. No more. Peter goes on to write. So the honor, the privilege is for you who believe. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. Now you have received mercy and a cheer went up from God's people. You are chosen. You're a royal priest. You're God's possession. You live in the light of God. You have received mercy, O temple of the living God. Is that good news? Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. You are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You and I are dwelling places of God. One more, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. And a cheer went up from God's people. I can't exegete all these passages right now. There's too many of them. They're too rich. They're too deep. I just want us all to have this overall feeling. Just this overall feeling as we consider them. We are temples. We are also stones. We are given stones by which we build our individual temples strong, and then we become stones in a bigger temple. Did did you follow all that? Just the general feeling. You know, we are temples. We are also stones. We are given stones by which we build our individual temples, and our individual temples become stones in a bigger temple. That God is building. And the temple is still in progress. God's still building it, which means he's still building you. And it also means this, that there will be, as there always has been, opposition to the building of your temple. We have an enemy that does not want to see it built, and that's what spiritual warfare is all about. We saw it acted out. In Zerubbabel's day, when we looked at this passage weeks ago, we saw the opponents threatening, bribing, lying, accusing, maneuvering politically to prevent the temple from being built. It took the Spirit of God to overcome the opposition, but God did it. The lethargy of the people was an obstacle to building the temple. They just didn't care whether the temple got built or not. And so the Spirit of God worked and overcame the obstacle by stirring up their spirits. I just want to make it crystal clear that this is what spiritual warfare is all about. God's enemy, the enemy of our souls, does not want the temple 
built. He does not want you to be strong. He doesn't want me to be strong. He wants you to be weak and defeated and ineffective. And he wants me to be weak and defeated and ineffective. He doesn't want our church, the church, to be strong. He wants it to be weak and defeated and ineffective. And so outside opposition, it's going to come your way. But there's also going to be opposition that comes from within you. And so the question becomes, how committed are you? How committed are you to becoming a strong temple, the dwelling place of God? I've been putting teasers out for weeks now about the means of grace, the word of God, sacraments, and prayer. These are the stones that God gives us whereby you and I build our temples to make them strong. These are the stones that we use so that we don't build our temple by our own strength, but by the Spirit of God. And I have said that these means of grace are the places where God meets us. And so that's how I'm going to finish out this morning. I want to let this soak into our being that the God of the universe seeks to meet with us. The God of the universe seeks to meet with us and a cheer went up from God's people. God meeting with us. Meeting with God. It's going to make you strong. How often are you doing it? Why are you not meeting with him more often? See, Adam and Eve, they had a time and they had a place where they met with God. The place was the garden. The time was the cool of the evening where they walked and talked with God. After they sinned, they didn't show up in that place at that time. They missed the meeting. Instead, Scripture says they hid themselves. And not only did they hide themselves, but Scripture says specifically that they hid from the presence of God. And that word translated presence actually means face. Adam and Eve hid themselves from the face of God. They were too ashamed. Too ashamed to look into God's face or have God's face look at them. Because of sin, they no longer wanted to do what they were created to do, what God longed for them to do, which was to meet with him face to face. They wanted to flee. They wanted to hide. God wanted to meet. That's always God's intent, to meet with his people, thus the temple, over and over. Particularly in Exodus, we read when God is talking about the temple, there I will meet you. There I will meet you. David writes in Psalm 49, 59, O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. Here's David watching and waiting to meet with God. See, sin has the same impact on us that it had on Adam and Eve. It makes us want to hide from God. 
I know it's true for me, and I know it's true from you, for you. It makes us fear looking into his face. But God wants you to meet with him and look on his face. God wants me to meet with him and look on his face. And so God made all the preparations to make this meeting possible. He gave his son to take away the sin that prevented us from meeting with God. He took it away so that you and I could be welcomed with joy when we come to meet with God. We can look on his face without shame because Jesus took our shame and our guilt on himself and a cheer went up from God's people. Is that not good news? Because of Jesus, we can meet face to face with God. And so I implore you, meet with God. God wants to meet with you. Meet God intentionally. Meet God extendedly. Make your own preparations for that meeting. Find a time. Find a place. Show up. Because you need to be a strong temple. Your family needs you to be a strong temple. Your friends need you to be a strong temple. This church needs you to be a strong temple. You don't need me to tell you that our country needs you to be a strong temple of God. So meet with him, not only privately, but corporately as well. Let's go back to Zerubbabel quickly. He's not building the temple alone. Nowhere, I challenge you, you'll never find it. Nowhere do you hear Zerubbabel saying, well, me and God, we have our own thing going. I don't need anyone else. You'll never find Zerubbabel saying those words. No, Zerubbabel is in charge of a group of people who together will build God's temple. God has made it so that we need each other. That's God's design. And God's special blessing rests on the corporate event of temple building, what we call meeting with God in worship. I don't say that to disparage in any way those private meetings with God, your personal piety, your family meetings with God. They are so vitally important. You must have those. All I'm doing is seeking to elevate the church, God's people gathered in worship. God works in a special way when his people are together. When his people were together in Zerubbabel's day, before that mountain of debris, when they were contemplating moving that mountain and building a new temple, when they were together with those thoughts, then, Scripture says, the Spirit of God came to them. Then, according to Scripture, He stirred their spirits and the temple was built together. God has made you and me as individuals part of a whole that's greater than ourselves as individuals He's designed us for each other. And Jesus elevates the beauty of that togetherness when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You need to meet with God together with his people. We need each other. We need to be what we say we want to be. Community 
and Christ. And so we've got to take advantage of the blessing that God gives to us in being able to meet together. And we have to look forward in eager anticipation of how God will work among us when we are together in ways that he might not work when we are all alone. If you've been around me very long, you know that one of my favorite theologians and authors is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the little book that he wrote called Life Together has been one of the most influential books in my life. So if you want to understand me a little more, which I know is a scary prospect, but if you do, read that little book, Life Together. In the book, he talks about the importance of church gathered, of community. And just to refresh your memories, he wrote during the time when Hitler had taken control of Germany. And this is what Bonhoeffer writes. And it's a little bit long, but it's so good. Everybody awake? Here we go. It's by God's grace that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly around God's word and sacrament in this world. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. The prisoner, the sick person, the Christian in exile recognizes in the companionship of the fellow Christians a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God, visitor and visited in loneliness, recognize in each other the Christ who is present in the body. They receive and meet each other as one meets the Lord. But if there is so much blessing and joy, even in a single encounter of brother with brother, how inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It's easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us. That the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians Praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is a grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Grace of God to be together, to worship together. You are the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. So am I. You and I, we are living stones in a bigger temple that God is building. And the more you and I meet with God through the power of His Spirit that dwells within us, 
the stronger and stronger you and I become. And the more God can accomplish in us and through us, we receive a special manifestation of God's presence and his grace when we meet together as living stones that we do not experience when we meet him alone. So if I ask you now, who do you want to meet? I hope your answer is God through Jesus. Where do you want to meet him? I hope your answer is that you are committed to meeting him alone and with others. Let's do it. Let's meet with God. Our world needs us to be strong, mighty temples of God. They need to see God's beautiful story. This beautiful drama of redemption lived out in us and through us. So let's be strong temples of God that declare his excellencies. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is so clear to us. Your design for things. The way you provide for human flourishing. That's what you have for us, Lord. Life in Christ. Not a blighted life, but a flourishing life. And the way to have that life, Lord, is to meet with you. To find a time. To find a place. To bring your word. To open it. To open our hearts before you. Or this will make us strong. When we worship together, Lord, when all these temples come together and your presence in each one of us, it's, it's amplified, it's multiplied. And so there's beauty and glory and splendor of your presence in worship. Lord, I pray that you would make us people who are committed to meeting with you alone and together because, Lord, we see that it is such a privilege such a gift of your grace. So let us meet, Lord, for the greater purpose that will be strong. And Lord, may we take that strength to our world as we take the good news and the hope and the story of your redemption to our broken, lost world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.